Hey everyone, welcome to The Full Life. Today's topic is a challenging one, but it is an important one in today's world. We're talking about human trafficking. And I just wanted to give a disclaimer to all the parents out there with children in earshot. You might just wanna screen what we talk about first before they can hear what we're saying. But otherwise, we hope that you are enlightened by this conversation. Full Life viewers, I have to say, uh, having heard her story, you are in for a powerful testimony today. Our guest, Ilanka Deaton, is currently a singer and speaker to audiences across the U.S. She encourages individuals to the love of Jesus Christ and reminds them that their stories matter. As a recording artist, Ilanka has 11 recorded albums performing internationally and also collaborating and performing on projects with Michael W. Smith, Jill Phillips, Rebecca St. James, and others. Her latest album, To Be Loved, she completed for Naxxis record label in Nashville. She loves fly fishing with her husband. And during her childhood music career, she did experience the trauma of human trafficking I want to graciously welcome to the program, Ilanka Deaton. Thank you for joining us. Joseph, Carolyn, Jenny, thank you so much for having me on today and for even having the heart to want to talk about this very difficult topic. It is difficult, but it is definitely an issue in our world today. So we have to, as the body of Christ, address it. It is our commission to do so. So I do want to start with right there. Ilanka, can you give your story? Can you give your testimony, please? I would I would be honored to. Um, Joseph, my, my story, unfortunately, is not unique. Uh, it is one that many uh, girls, boys, adult women and men, unfortunately, uh, go through. So I feel like I'm a part of a bigger community when I'm, when I'm talking about, about trafficking. When I was um, living in South Africa, I was born and raised in South Africa, I entered a national singing competition at the age of 12, kind of like an American Idol, but way before American Idol ever existed. Um, the, the way I was introduced into uh, this talent competition was by um, a neighbor, a friend of mine, a girl who was my age and her mom was getting ready to marry um, a man who's going to be her stepdad and he was a talent buyer. And he uh, kind of gave her a commission to go out and talk to all of her friends about this talent competition. A little bit later, we'll talk about grooming and, and how that played a part in, in my story. But I ended up entering this competition and um, I won it, singing Whitney Houston's The Greatest Love of All. Um, thought that, you know, this was the best thing since sliced bread. And um, my life just really changed and moved into a, a professional young star career. First year of my life was amazing. I um, I got to experience what it was like to work with publicists and hairdressers and makeup artists. And I did my first album and, and cutting my teeth and learning how to work in a studio environment and what it's like working with songwriters and all of the things that you naturally would experience if you are an adult, you know, entering the music industry. Well, my, my life was just the way I thought it could be. The one big problem 
or I would say maybe a gap that I had in my life was the fact that I did not have a dad around. My parents went through a divorce when I was 13 months old. My dad was in the Air Force. My mom was a teacher. My dad became a, um, a dysfunctional alcoholic, and my mom wanted to protect us from that. He suffered some PTSD, so I can understand her reasoning for that, but it did leave an abandoned abandonment hole in my life because when my dad stepped out, he chose not to stay engaged with us. So when my music career happened and I won this recording agreement and the record company assigned a manager to my career, I thought maybe I would get to experience what it is like to have a dad in my life because the manager that they assigned, we'll just call him John. John, who they assigned to my career, was uh, you know older than my dad at that point and would step into that father role for mm. me. And he really did. He, uh, he taught me a lot about the music industry. Um, I felt that he loved me well. And that first year, I thought that he taught me well and that he was kind and, and respectful. I was very wrong about him. I didn't know that. A year into my contract, my mom, who had grown to, to trust this man, allowed him to pick me up to take me to a band rehearsal. He picked me up and I tell you what, when I got in the car that day, I knew something was wrong. The, it, the fibers of my being could almost feel evil, but I couldn't express it at 12 years old. I knew something wasn't right. Mm -hmm. That day was the very first day that he uh, sexually uh, attacked me and raped me. After he did that, he threatened to kill my mother. And then he threatened to kill my brothers in front of me. Now, in that moment of when he threatened my, my family, I made an immediate decision to protect my mom. Mm -hmm. Although no one asked me to do that, I immediately clothed myself in that. What I didn't realize was that John, my trafficker, um, needed to break my spirit so that he could control me. Wow. And the only way that you can, you can break a victim's spirit is to threaten the thing that they hold most dear. Mm -hmm. And 90 plus percent of the time, that is usually family members that they threaten to hurt. There's something very interesting about uh, traffickers and, and pedophiles and predators. They do not move fast. They move very slow. They are methodical. Their networks are usually very wide and big and broad, and they know exactly what they're doing. After the first time that he attacked me, he waited three months before the second time. All in all, it took him nine months before he introduced me into the trafficking ring. And when he did, I, I was also not submerged into the totality of it. It was step by step by step by step. I was kept in this situation for five years of my life. Um, my mom knew from the very first time I came home that something had happened to me, that something was wrong. Right. She got everybody from my youth pastor to the pastor. Um, I was hospitalized for a week, psychiatrist, therapist, you know, group therapy, anything to help me just talk about what had happened. But I was so convinced that he was going to kill my mom that I just could not say a word. I And the more people asked me, the more that secret became dearer to me. Like I have to keep this secret for the sake of their survival. So five years, mom tried up until... I was 17 years old. And as, as you lose yourself and, and your spirit is broken, um, you start making uh, wrong decisions in line with what's going on with you. The day that I was rescued by this under, undercover police officer, um, I had made a decision that 
I did not care if if John was going to kill me that day. I was done. There was I don't know who I was. I, I had so much depression and anxiety. I was filled with shame. I just didn't care. Like just kill me, but you are not having sex with me again. This is just you're not selling me to somebody. I'm not doing you a favor, no matter how much money you attach to it. And and by the way, when 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 you are in the traffic in the entertainment industry, you are asked to um, uh, to do favors like third party f- sexual favors to other men, and they hold money you know over your head, but you never see that money. That's the thing mm-hmm. is, is they, they keep the work that they keep the, the, the money from the work that you do, like being a performer and an artist um, by dangling a carrot in front of you of, of fame, but then sell you out to do sexual favors for CEOs. I just wanted to ask you from the time that you were 13 or 14 mm-hmm. first raped from there until you be, you were trafficked mm-hmm. and that transition, how that transition happened. Sure. So um, the, the nine months after the first time that he, that he assaulted me himself was the first time that he said, okay, I have um, a contract for you to do this many uh, performing dates for this company, this touring company. However, in order for you to get this and you want this because you want to be famous, right? And you want to do another album. And if you want to do those things, you kind of need to go along with this. You need to have sex with the CEO. He's the one that owns this company. He is the one that, runs these contracts he's the one that's going to sign off when you're doing it so if you want to be a good girl and play a game you can do it wow and that's what started the first time it sounds like what they do is they tap into not only a need but a fear right absolutely yes and you know i, I was raised by a single mom who he was a teacher you know what teacher salaries are like my mom raised three kids on a teacher's salary in a country where there are no social services available to anybody still to this day. There are no food stamps. There are no unemployment benefits. You know, you have to work. And if you if you have debt, you know, even medical debt, you go to prison. So my mom was constantly having juggling two, three jobs and doing the best that she could. So any any amount of money that I could make that I could bring back home, you know, to say, hey, here's money for food or here's money to, to, to pay the electricity. Although my mom never, ever asked me to do any of that. I felt like I could contribute to my family because, you know, we were middle class family, but we struggled. Mm-hmm. And uh, he used that. He used money. Absolutely. And. You know, it's ve- it's very rare that you know, it's just wealthy kids that get trafficked. It's yeah. easier to control kids that are middle to low class. Yeah, it is because you can you can use money, you know, as a, as, a, as a drawing and and, and a, a pulling grooming tool for them. Well, and that's something I think it's important that we bring up. Sex trafficking is no respecter of age, of race, or of economic status. Absolutely, so they go after children who, like you said, are economically low, fatherless. Sometimes the mothers are working several jobs are not there or they're, I mean, this is such, you know, one thing that you, you said that hit me really hard was that, and and the more I get into this, the children that they get, I mean, starting some so young, you guys, I mean, 13 is an average age. Is that true? 12, 12 years old average. Mm -hmm. But then it goes on down and on up is what I'm understanding. And, but these kids, every video right now and girl that I've been speaking to lately, they're so numb. They speak of this just like you do. Like they are just so numb. They just talk about things that you and I would just be devastated by 
They're so numbed by it. And I think that's what hit, is hitting me, Ilanka. How, how did you begin once you were saved? That was just the beginning of the journey. Yeah. So through some of that healing. Yeah. That is that I love talking about this portion. Um, my, after I, the, the undercover cop, you know, rescued me that night, I disappeared for almost a year. It took my mom um, a year almost to find me with the help of police, and they eventually did. And she brought me back to Johannesburg and then convinced me to move with her to Nashville. She had gotten a teaching position in Nashville and really, I guess she wanted, she wanted to rescue me out of South Africa. I willingly came because I could run away from my past, but I did not realize that I was going to walk into my adult life um, not knowing who I was, who I belonged to, having depression, anxiety, um, mental strain, uh, just feeling like I had no worth in life. Yeah. Um, I very quickly got married in the U.S., had a failed marriage at 25, and that was a defining point when I shared my secret for the first time yeah. because I could not keep it in anymore. And when I, when I shared what happened to me and the totality of all of it, my life fell apart. And I couldn't take it. So I attempted suicide, ended up in a psychiatric hospital. And after I got out of the psychiatric hospital, I was invited with now my husband, Bill, to go to um, a church here in Franklin. And I didn't want to go because I thought the church was just for perfect people. And I am messy and broken and thought I was gross, you know. And God showed up for me. I heard a pastor, Scotty Smith, preach a message that Jesus loves broken people and he loves your scars and he wants to take the messes of your life and make them beautiful and show you that your story matters. And when I left the church that Sunday, um, I attempted suicide a second time, failed. And I heard God audibly speak to me. Now, this is just my story. God audibly called my name and just said, Ilonka, why will you not cry out to me? I am here cry out to me hmm. and in absolute desperation and arrogance i must say it was a it was a bloody mess um i said okay jesus if you know if you are who that pastor said you are then come into this house and help me and don't send an angel because i don't want to be afraid but just come help me because i absolutely want to die it would be a gift of grace if i would die right now right. and right. god god brought a blanket of peace over me I uh, fell asleep for 18 hours, which is not something I normally did. And when I woke up, my personality was changed overnight. And I told Joseph this before. You can ask anybody that knew me at that point in my life. My personality was literally changed overnight. Yeah. I had depression since I was 12 years old. And I think it was a, it was a spirit that, that lived with me. You know, yeah. a dark, depressive, a sexual, lustful spirit that was just over me. God took that away from me, and and I felt I felt the lifting of it, and it left, and it's never come back. Wow. But let me tell you something: when the Lord saved me, and I did not know that I prayed a salvation prayer in that very broken prayer, but when He did, He also opened my eyes. Did you know that I did not see birds, like literally see birds? or trees, or hear birds sing for 12 years of my life. Because the enemy is so powerful in blinding you when you are attached 
to um, an evil agenda of destroying your life. Satan's always wanted to destroy God's beauty since the garden. It's no different. Trafficking is not a new thing. Trafficking dates back to the fall of man. And the enemy will continue to do this until the return of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But it's our job to fight back and, 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 and um, explain to victims and survivors and uh, people that are still trapped in this, like, you do not have to accept this as your life. There is a way for you to get out of this. Yeah. And that's how it happened for me. I did not deserve one single thing of what Jesus did for me, but he did it. Mm-hmm. And over the next three years after he saved me, he started teaching me about who I am and whose I am. And it was a process. Yeah. It, it was difficult. It was hard. I've been in trauma therapy for almost 12 years now. I still go because things still come up in my life. But every single part of what was taken from me, he has restored. And he's restoring. God is for your entire story, not just for one portion of it. He will rebuild and restore every part of it. It might not look like the way I thought it was going to look like, but you know what? To be honest with you, it's better than what I could have imagined. Wow. It wow. Ilanka, you mentioned fighting back. And and mm-hmm. so I know that you, that's a part of your life right now. You know, we're in this fight and I want you to address two things in this fight. One, you know, what we're dealing with, you know, right now, uh, as far as you mentioned children being groomed, if you could just maybe address that children being groomed, but two, how we can fight back because you didn't quite tell us how you were rescued. Uh, by the undercover cops, so how we can participate. So, you know, where we're at in that picture of fighting back. Um, Jenny, I will answer that for you. And just so that you know, um, when I was rescued from a trafficking situation, the word trafficking didn't exist. And the undercover cop did not know that I was in trouble. He happened to be there and he happened to just act when he Mm -hmm. saw John physically started attacking me. So back to your question about what people can do is the very first thing that that is is crucial for every single parent and child is to be educated about this. I'll give you some statistics of 2019 that has been given to us by the Polaris Project. The Polaris Project is is our national um, anti-human trafficking hotline. All in all, there were 11,500 situations were specifically human trafficking. 22,000 of that were specific survivors. 4,400 were actual traffickers, and 1,912 were um, businesses who were involved in trafficking operations. And that's just of the calls that came in of what we know of. If you look at the statistics of the missing children in our life in, in, in the United States, it's a large number for every single state. Right. And here's how it works. Most of the time, Children are trafficked by family members or someone that they know in the family. Just like what happened to me. John used a friend of mine to become a recruiter. She didn't even know that. She became a recruiter by telling people about the event, about this talent competition, drawing people to him. They would come to him. He would sell it. He would rig it so that whoever he wants to win the competition wins the competition, start grooming them. Oh, you're amazing. You're great. You're going to be a star. You're going to be wonderful. Here's this. Here's this. Gifts, 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 money, 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 throwing that at you, especially when there is a family that has a weakness like mine, single parent family. And then all of a sudden, he's going to attack at the right time. When he breaks your spirit, he works on the ability to control you. Once he controls you, They can do anything with you. They can sell a girl a hundred times if they want to. It's just.
sickening. It's absolutely sickening. Once the human spirit is broken, it can be controlled. And that is, to me, that's the fight. That is where the fight is. And that's where Jesus shows up because Jesus is never about fear, shame, and condemnation. And if you can, if you can approach a, a victim or someone who's actively in trafficking or someone that has survived trafficking and have a conversation with him about shame and condemnation, how Jesus showed up in your personal life, doesn't even have to be a trafficking situation. You will be able to reach a place in their heart that very few people can. You know, Ilanka, I, I, I know we're coming to an end of this segment. I'd just love for you to take a moment because I think there might be people that are tuning in right now who maybe are in the middle of this battle. They are, because what I'm understanding is that it's not just people that are in hotels. This is happening right in their homes. Oh, so yeah. they'll be watching this and they're taken mm -hmm. after school. And they're, I mean, the more we dive into this, the more sicker and demented you realize this whole situation is. But what if somebody is watching right now, what would you say to them about God's healing power? Is, is there hope and how can they get out of it? And then also talk to the parent. Maybe they're grabbing their children right now and saying, watch and listen to Ilanka's testimony here and let's wise up to what we can do to prevent it. Well, my dear friends, if you are someone who is in a situation where you're being sexually abused, taken advantage of, or someone is holding something over your head to say, hey, come with us to this party, do this, and we will give you some things and we'll make you popular. If anybody has pulled you into a situation that you know you don't want to be in, especially sexually, I want you to know that first of all, you matter. You matter so much. And none of this is your fault. You didn't do anything wrong to deserve this. There are darker powers at play that have pulled you into this. The good news is you can make a decision not to be stuck here. Those secrets that you are being asked to keep are secrets that will make you sick. They will bind you and tie you and shackle you until you are a prisoner, prisoner to yourself. You don't have to stay there. There is a way. I'll take it from me. Take it from a, a survivor of a trafficking situation. I had to make the decision to speak up and say, this is what happened to me. I want to urge you to find a safe person in your life. And by safe person, I mean not someone that's harming you. Someone that you really, really can trust. That might be a teacher, might be a parent, might be a friend, or it could be that you need to call the National Trafficking Hotline or the National Abuse Hotline. Please do that. Speak up and ask for help. There are tons of free resources for you, and there is a way for you to get out of this. God loves you with all of his might and all of his heart, and your shame and condemnation that you are feeling because of what you have been through, it's not yours to own, and you do not have to carry it by yourself. Our next guest is Dr. Christina Crenshaw. She's a professor, researcher, writer, and human trafficking fighter. She teaches faith and writing, vocational leadership, and human trafficking courses at Baylor University. For the past five years, Dr. Crenshaw has worked with several human trafficking organizations, such as the A21 campaign, Unbound Now, the Texas Governor's Human Trafficking Task Force, the Heart of Texas Human Trafficking Coalition, and Operation Mobilization's Freedom Climb. I think suffice to say, she's very qualified to talk on this issue. And I'm thrilled that she took the time and to join us today, even though she's teaching back at school. Please welcome, Dr. Christina Crenshaw. Well, thank you. It is an honor to be here. Thank you for having me on. 
we'll jump right in. But first, we want to know about you know you back your background, who you are, and and your work on human trafficking. I ended up landing, um, you know, sort of divine story, but divine story short, a tenure track position at California Baptist University. There we had had some fertility issues, started the adoption process. And then we, you know, wake up one day and I thought I had the flu, broke down and took a test. I'm like, it's it's a miracle. We felt like this, in fact, we named our son Corbin because we felt like this was a gift from God that we were giving, you know, back to the Lord. And so we said, you know, Lord, with this gift, what, what do you have for us? And I felt like the Lord asked me to step off the, at the tenure track position. And that was such a professional struggle for me because, um, you know, anybody with an understanding of academia knows that those positions don't come around easily. Um, All of my mentors had suggested that I, you know, stay, move closer to the university, get a nanny. And I just did not have a piece about that. You know, we we didn't have a piece about it. And our um, church um, had relationship with the H21 campaign. And the H21 campaign is one of um, the, a global leader in anti-trafficking work. And I would say particularly five, six years ago, they were doing some pretty groundbreaking advocacy work, awareness, and they do have some some restoration centers. But at that time, they were looking to write high school curriculum. And because I have this background with teaching high school students and and with writing curriculum, they wondered if I was interested, interested in partnering with them. And so I felt like that was kind of the first time the Lord was like, see, just trust me, this is unconventional. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, not really what you set out to do, but I, you know, kind of want you to, to do this work. So human trafficking is one of those issues that once you know, you cannot un- unknow. And right. it, um, yeah, so I think the A21 campaign, helping them write curriculum, and then taking that back to Baylor to start doing research on that particular issue. And then that, you know, kind of ballooned ballooned out from there. I just think it'd be nice for us to maybe go over some definitions. So if you could provide us some basic definition of what is human trafficking, um, and then maybe also what are the various forms it can take as well. Department of Homeland Security and and most reputable sources will use this short definition because as short as it is, it really does, um, it captures, I think, the essence of what trafficking is. The Department of Homeland Security says that um, human trafficking is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some form of labor or sex. So what human trafficking is essentially, um, and there are you know, sort of different connotations when we're talking about minors and we're talking about adults, but um, it is essentially using um, some form of, of trickery in order to bribe somebody, force somebody into a situation where you're then exploiting them. And mm-hmm. so when we're talking about labor trafficking, you know, that can be a little bit harder to identify. Um, oftentimes people who are victims of labor trafficking don't identify. Um, it's underreported, even more than sex trafficking. Um, so sex trafficking tends to be a little bit easier to define. Um, and it's been, I think, more on our national radar um, globally as well. But when we're talking about minors, even if there has been quote unquote consent, we still consider that to be human trafficking because exploitation, they are not old enough to consent. You know, there's almost always a vulnerability that was exploited um, and a trafficker takes advantage of that that vulnerability, be it illegal immigration. And so they're taking advantage of that for labor trafficking or if it's a child who is a runaway, which, you know, is part of the vulnerable population that we're concerned about. Um, and they're exploiting their need for shelter and food and safety. So the exploitation, you know, forced fraud or coercion in order to for their own their own gain. So. 
Could you go back and explain a little bit of the history of, of human trafficking, the development, how we got to where we are, and, and really look at or let us know what the width and the breadth of this problem is in our nation and around the world. What are we really looking at? So in, in some sense, this is not a new uh, crime, but what has made it troubling in modern times is the use of the internet to exploit people, to mm. rob people, to profit from people. Um, and, you know, cybercrime is an area of human trafficking that just keeps growing. It is heartbreaking. And I've had the, the, the opportunity to sit on several, you know, different White House and um, different task force, Department of Homeland Security, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children over COVID. And the numbers of children who are being abused, period, but um, abused sexually exploited online have skyrocketed during COVID. So uh, starting so a starting point, wow. and, and I guess that makes sense. You know, we're all online more than we've ever been before. So I think 2000 is a good place to start with, you know, policymakers, stakeholders, people who are involved in the protection of vulnerable populations, because these people have been around, and I think it's important to note that, you know, combating human trafficking long before combating human trafficking was a thing. Um, so I think that it was a natural invitation to the table to have these sorts of people come around in 2000 and say, okay, let's give language to what actually human trafficking is. Um, and then those sort of definitions have grown, I hate to use the word evolve, but they've, they've grown and changed and morphed over time. It used to be that we would say trafficking was really only the export, you know, exporting of a person and, and, and taking them from one location to another. But we understand now that, you know, trafficking about 40% of it depends on where in the country you are and, and what country about 40% happens in home. You know, mm -hmm. these people aren't actually ever even transported. So we sort of changed the language around that. We've had to get, you know, really um, uh, specific with our language on what's the difference between human smuggling and what's the difference between human trafficking. And oftentimes those there's concentric overlap and, and concentric circles and relationship there. But then when we talk about human trafficking, that that is the actual exploitation of somebody for profit. A couple of years ago, the University of Texas had a pretty groundbreaking study. This study came out in 2016, 2017, and it looked at Texas and it said just with what they could find, the data they could find, in Texas, there were 300,000 people who were victims of human trafficking. And of that 300,000, 79,000 were youth, were minors. So if we know, as best we know, and those numbers are probably more conservative than they are inflated because of underreporting, then we can imagine what's going on in California, which is the number one traffic state, in Florida, which is number three, you know, in, in other states that are high risk, New York, um, Georgia, you know, Atlanta, Georgia has um, high trafficking numbers. So if that's just with Texas, right, and that's just mm -hmm. you know, in the U.S., then we can sort of imagine what must be going on on the national landscape. And then then when we look at numbers globally, yeah. we don't necessarily have numbers you know, memorized, although I can tell you sort of percentage, um, that we surmise that labor trafficking makes up the, the bulk of human trafficking. And that makes sense when we look at how our garments are made, how our coffee is, is curated, you know, the, you know, our foods is sort of, you know, our diamonds are mined. Labor trafficking is the most exploited form of um or it is the most you know, human trafficking exploitation. Um, but second to that would be sex trafficking. And when we look at sex trafficking, it disproportionately affects our women and our children. So it's not that males can't be a victim of that crime because they are, and particularly male boys, but by and large, it doesn't happen to um, adult males. 
So when we talk about sex trafficking, it is happening mostly to women and children. And when we talk about labor trafficking, that tends to be kind of equally gendered um, with who's exploited, you know, factories, often it's women. When we're talking about fields, it's men. Um, when we're talking about, and that's something we, ha we haven't talked about yet, but who is the buyer? And that can be a Waco small town um, sting operation. And we've done a number of those. That can be, you know, dim, you know, we talk about Jeffrey Epstein, or we talk about what's going on globally, it is typically a white middle-aged male. Is there truth to uh, some of the rumors that we hear about like Wayfair yeah. selling children that way? I mean, is that, that, that you know, $20,000 for like a table and yeah. are so that's them selling child. Is that true? Um, so short answer, no, it's not true with Wayfair. Uh, longer answer, do rings like this occur? Not that I have seen to this gravity. I think the the, the thing that I have pointed to that is the biggest sort of, um, if you will, conspiracy ring that ended up being true is Jeffrey Epstein. Of course. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been following that case yes. oh, yeah. you know, closely. Yeah, but, um, you know, so there before Wayfair, there was Pizzagate. And you know, the first time I heard about that, I remember thinking, you know, okay, Pizzagate, there's a pizza parlor in DC exploiting children. I mean, it could happen. Certainly something like that could happen. But as I started to investigate and research and read article after article, I just, it just sort of started to fall apart. It, it's, it ceased to make sense when I started to like really research it and then reaching out to experts. So, you know, quite literally emailing John Richmond, who is the ambassador for human trafficking here in the United States under the Trump administration. And, you know, he's like, no, we just have not found any validity to this. And so I think that sort of laid the rumors to rest that, you know, happened around 2016. And then the next sort of Pizzagate after that was the Wayfair. And so, you know, again, someone emails it to me and I'm, and I'm reading and I'm like, well, I mean, certainly this would be the most sophisticated ring I have ever read or heard of, but it, you know, possibly. So I am just not one to dismiss or accept things at face sure. value. So I reached out to our Waco human trafficking detective and he said, you know, it's funny that you, you're texting me about this because just last week we started, you know, researching this before it ever even hit the news. They said, we just cannot find any validity to it. It's certainly bizarre. And I think everyone would agree with that. I think even Wayfair was like, this is really bizarre. But we couldn't find anything that actually linked actually, you know, real victims to these supposed crimes. And so I would say this is where I think people just have to use caution and not accepting conspiracies at face value because, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, it turned out to be multifaceted, multilayered, more egregious than any of us would have thought five, 10 or 10 years ago. Um, and so when we were calling that conspiracy years ago, it turned out to be there was, you know, there's a lot of validity and we could find victims who identified and who could speak to that. But I don't, ever think of myself as the expert on unraveling a conspiracy. So I will always go to the experts. I will reach out to our human trafficking detective. I will look at websites, you know, like Polaris Project is a good one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, Department of Homeland Security. Even ICE has some good, you know, definitions for the difference between immigration and smuggling and human trafficking. So I think going to a respectable source when you hear something that seems really outlandish is a good place to start. So you talked about, you know, it's not, the Wayfair is not what it looks like. So I guess my question back next is, you know, what does it look like? You know, how do this, does the grooming or the, those 
the trafficking start to happen? Traffickers can take the form of almost any role in society. Um, And this is always the most heartbreaking, not necessarily the norm, but not the exception either. Sometimes it's parents who, um, for for drug uh, money, for other reasons of just financial gain, that's particularly true in less developed countries. We see that more in less developed countries where parents are willing to exploit their children online or in person um, for, for profit. But bottom line, the common thread is anybody that a kid typically trusts. Right. Um, with runaway children, because they are they're higher young runaway youth, they're higher at risk. Um, so are LGBTQ kids. Um, again, kids that are you know vulnerable, who don't feel like they fit in, who don't have a place. And so a lot of times, traffickers will you know sort of see that exploitation and take them in, offer them housing, offer them food. Um, this is not a term that I'm a, a fan of, but a term that I have heard different circles of friends who do this work use, and they'll call it survival sex, but that kids will sometimes, you know, sort of willingly agree to their own exploitation in order just to get their their needs, their needs met. And I think what we've come to understand, and this is so important, is that these kids then grow up and they, you know, become legal adults, but that abuse and that trauma and those needs and those exploitations didn't change. So I think that that has really helped us understand, you know, like, how do we then stop punishing and perpetuating the trauma that victims are feeling, and then go after the actual problem, you know, looking at how do we bring um, honorable, equitable work to people who might otherwise be victims of this? How do we go after perpetrators? How do we, um, you know, go after buyers, you know, so perpetrators could be, you know, traffickers who are selling, it could be, you know, the people who are buying. And I'm starting to see movement in different circles more than others. I probably see this more in faith-based circles, but this understanding that the perpetrators need counseling as well, that we need some sort of Mm -hmm. programs, something to help stop perpetuating the trauma that they're then inflicting on other people. So not just sort of survivor advocacy, um, which, you know, you know, we need trauma centers, we need, we need survivor advocacy, but we're starting to see a movement that I, that I'm appreciative of that is actually looking at how do we then rehabilitate the people who are trafficking and who are buying. Wow. Yeah. You don't hear that very often. You don't. It's not to call them the victim, but it's to say somewhere this has to stop. And just telling someone to stop doesn't fix right. the problem. And it's not necessarily, you know, feeling bad. But from what I have understood in the past, you know, people that have been abused oftentimes will abuse right. as well. Or you know, so maybe that's been in their exactly. past. Exactly. Or we've all heard the the phrase "hurt people, hurt people." And yeah, right. Um, there is a strong correlation. It's hard to say causation, but there is a strong correlation between pornography and trafficking. So when we're talking about victims who end up being trafficked, there's a strong correlation between women who may or may not have chosen to, to, you know, to engage in pornography, but then end up getting stuck and trafficked. There is an even stronger correlation between men who are addicted to pornography, and then that addiction ends up 
leading them down the path of buying. And so when we recognize that, I think particularly as people of faith and as, you know, Big C Church, we have to ask ourselves, okay, then where do we stop the brokenness? Like, how do we find healing for people? Because, you know, we're talking about brokenness begets brokenness. So where do we go as people of faith to say we have got to address the brokenness? And um, here in Waco, in particular, we have a a program called Stop Demand School. Um, So some places have John schools, but we have a Stop Demand School. And if you are caught soliciting, it's a misdemeanor offense and not a felony, then you are eligible, in addition to paying a steep fine, to going to Stop Demand School. And it's an all-day Saturday school where they pay out of their own pocket a lot like, you know, defensive driving, I think would be, you know, sort of an analogy for that. And they sit through a training that talks about human trafficking and how this is, you know, their decision to buy was not done, you know, at the micro level, but this has macro effects. They bring in a psychologist, they bring in a survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk a little bit about the difference between a victim and a survivor. Um, but they bring in a survivor to talk. And I, I, they've had a couple of hundred guys go through it in the past few years that it's been established. And they said they've only had one repeat offender. Wow. So, yeah. And so, I mean, part of that too is, you know, if you are caught a second time, then it is a felony and you're, you know, you're going to trial, you're going to jail. So there's that too. But the the data on how many people are repeat offenders after they've received some sort of rehabilitation shows that typically they do not repeat this. Repeat offenders have not had any sort of intervention program. And I think that that speaks to a larger narrative too, and a larger issue when we talk about restorative programs within our justice system, right? You know, we we see that we give people some sort of place of hope and redemption and a place to reconcile that brokenness inside of them, that the, the outcome of that tends to be overwhelmingly more positive and productive than if we just simply punish people. So I, yeah, I think that kind of, you know, covers the landscape, you know, big macro picture. It's, it's broken and it's messy for everyone involved. And we have to have, you know, policies that protect victims and we have to have policies that punish. But really, after we have protected and we have punished, we have got to look at how do we restore? How do we restore what has been broken? So. Um, Christina, it's so, I love having you on today because this is just really, really a dear subject to me. And I've actually been working, I'm here in Orlando, Florida, where you know us, we are the number three um, uh, state for sex trafficking, yes. And so I've been working with a lot of the crisis centers and uh, a lot of the psychologists and the people who are in the middle, just like you, rehabilitating and the stories we are i'm getting from these girls my heart as you well know is just breaking and i i think it's so important we're talking about talking with a a company that they actually go in and do sting operations they posted up of how quick it would take a pedophilist to come and find her Mm -hmm. 24 seconds yeah and what posted up was a man and private areas that should not be seen. That's what came up to this 11 year old child. And, you know, I'm sitting here, I've got a 11 year old child. I've got a 15 year old daughter and I have an 18 year old boy. And my heart as a mother is going, we need to wake up as, as parents and as our daughters and, and, and our sons and go, 
what do we need to do to learn how these children are being groomed, what is grooming them, what are things that we can do to protect them, uh, things that we are holding in our hands, uh, what are the things that we can do? And so I would just love to hear from you uh, some of the things that you would suggest. So I think when we're talking about protecting our kids, the, 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 there is no silver bullet, but I think the thing that is most important is prevention education, which is you know part of what was appealing about you know partnering with the A21 campaign because it looks at getting to our youth before traffickers get to them, before people who who are not even necessarily traffickers but who are out there trolling the internet looking for unprotected kids. I think that giving this an aware, giving them an awareness, children an awareness, empowers them to at least be aware of. You know, people out there are posing to be other people and they are not safe people. As an educator, I have stayed up to date abreast on these issues and I can tell parents about different apps that they can use. And I think that that's good and you need to have, you know, password protected. You need to check your kid's technology time, like demand to see the phone at the end. Take the phone out of the room at night. I'm always so surprised by how many parents allow their kids to just keep their phone in the room at night. Um, so I think there's some really simple things, but I think that's interesting. It, and it is, that's, and I think, you know, again, my, my kids aren't there. And so I want to be sensitive to that. I don't, you know, I imagine it'd be difficult to fight with a 16 year old girl over her phone, but you're the parent and it is for her own good and for her own protection and her, you know, just for her own ability to sleep at night, you know, um, just, she's not roaming on the phone all night. She, mm -hmm. or she. but, um, I think just that willingness to supervise your kids technology we have a rule where they cannot do technology any behind closed doors. So that is a little bit more difficult to monitor when you're talking about your kid's phone. And you know, perpetrators are getting through Instagram, they're getting through Facebook. Facebook is still a highly, a, a way that traffickers reach kids. I was sort of surprised yeah. to learn that in our, in our data because I didn't know really it was on um, a lot of kids have fake Instagrams. Yeah. So it's like, that's a huge thing, right? So people are like, oh, I know all my kids' password. Sure. Well, do you know all their passwords? Yeah. Um, when I used to work in youth ministry years ago, that was like a big thing five, six years ago. Yeah. And I had to learn what a Finsta was, right? Like, you know, so you can, I can show you their one profile. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is a model Christian student, you know? Um, and then those are the kids who taught yeah. me what a Finsta is. And I was just like, oh, you know? So I do think keeping lines of communication is, is hugely important for parents as well. Um, um, one of my hopes with my two daughters is that we'll always be able to talk about everything, you know, and it doesn't make it, it doesn't, it doesn't make it easy or will be fun, but yeah. that's just one of the things we pray for and we're working towards is building them up that no matter what's going on, we can talk about it. But Facebook, Instagram, um, WhatsApp, now TikTok. And so it is a little bit difficult for parents to monitor that. Get an account on all of those um, accounts and, and make your kids accept your invitation. So you can see the information that they're posting. Our human trafficking detective here in town, um, Joseph Scaramucci, great guy, travels really internationally doing different talks for parents on how to protect their kids. Um, and he says, and I, and I love that he was willing to go there. This might be you know controversial for some, but I don't think it will be in this crowd. But he said, you cannot be the kind of parent who hashtags save our children and is against human trafficking, but then your 16 year old daughter is twerking on TikTok. He said, there cannot be that. I know. Such I a good statement.
My God. Oh my gosh. It needs to be said. And so I think, yeah. you know, sort of this cowboy guy wears a hat. You know, look him up, Joseph Scaramucci. But, you know, I think for him to say, you know, he's a dad of a, you know, junior high boy. And he's like, you have to be vigilant with the information our kids are putting out there. And so I think we just have to accept that, you know, there, there cannot be this disconnect between that's other people's kids. That's, you know, pedophilers are finding other kids online. Um, even I think with our adults, we can't say, oh, that's other people's trauma because that's still trauma that's occurring in your community. And that's part of mm. people of faith loving your neighbor. So, you know, we have to care about the adults too. We also have to recognize that the adults were once children who were exploited, who were abused, whose vulnerabilities were preyed upon. And that is why they're in the circumstances that they're in. So I think it's that place of compassion where we say, what can we do for our children and for, for our yeah. adults? But that specifically to online and with our kids, I think I can't overemphasize parents being vigilant of their kids' technology. Don't allow them to have a computer in their room, put it out in public. Um, I think with video games, as much as possible, that needs to, you know, like not just the headphones, but sound on so that you can hear who's interacting with your kids. Again, we're not here yet. But, you know, already Mm -hmm. I want to play games. And I love that vigilance thing that you're talking about um with that but but even mentioning it's gonna sound wrong to some people but what your kids wear i remember watching uh some a good friend post about their daughter going to prom and i remember thinking my god i would never allow my daughter to wear that i mean it was hardly clothing her and then it turns out that night um she they they didn't call it rape, but she ended up having sex and she told her parents she didn't want to. He pressured her into it. Well, that pretty much borderlines. I also think another way we combat some of this is how do we change our attitudes? Um, from my experience, we are very quick to condemn parents and maybe girls for wearing certain outfits. Um, but I think we just got to raise better sons and teach them like this is not OK. Um, I will say, and this, you know, this is just from the research I've done, and I've had a number of students who have you know, written papers in my human trafficking course and then just my faith and writing on this topic. And apparently, there isn't a ton of correlation between what a girl wears and whether or not she's sexually assaulted. Like, you know, as soon as we can find the promiscuous outfit, we can also find the girl who was, you know, fully clothed and just you know, exactly. Yeah. Great. You know, so I, so I think it's important to address, but this is what I would say, you know, sort of my caveat to that. What I say to parents is, would you want a grown man looking at that in their bedroom? And like, I've never had a parent say yes. Right. And so I think that that's just sort of a litmus again, I'm it maybe a little different since I'm raising boys. Um, but I think that that's a litmus that I would use as a parent of teens and that I would say for other parents, like, would you want a grown man looking at this material in his bedroom? And in, and I think that as much as a parent can, that's when you say, we're not going to twerk in this video and put it on TikTok. We're not going to wear this, um, you know, promiscuous looking outfit and then put that out for the world to see. And I think that's just good parenting. It's just guarding your kids because they're not old enough to make those decisions for themselves. I do think it is important to have some sort of prevention education program in our um, sixth through 12th schools at age appropriate that talks about perpetrators online, that talks about, you know, protecting yourself if you're, you know, if you feel vulnerable, who are the safe adults, 
how to go to the high school counselor. We also need education for teachers. And again, we're, we're slowly getting there. We're starting to get these sort of policies in place where teachers know, you know, to whom do I report this sort of information? Do I call the police right away? Is it a CPS? Is it a school counselor? And, you know, it just depends on, on what the situation is. One thing that I've been learning is we need to be looking for the signs of our children that are walking into our home. Because so many of us want to think that sex trafficking is happening outside, that they're stealing our children. Some of these kids are being brought home every day. It could be the neighbor could be taking them. And what I'm learning is it's really important. And you can maybe speak to this doctor a little bit, but just is looking for them to give little tattoos, little things. If they're bringing home extra gifts, if yeah. they're, they're acting like they've got a boyfriend that's doing all this plethora stuff for them, this could be part of the grooming situation. And I think it's real important as parents. It's what you have been saying. We need to be involved. Signs vary, again, going back to suspicious behavior, suspicious behavior. It is true that there have been cases where, um, you know, historically we would call them pimps. We don't, we don't say that anymore, but, you know, but traffickers would tattoo any kind of ownership really is what it comes mm. down to. It's this place of, you know, just vibrato and, you know, ownership and I own you, um, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, suspicious tattoos, but if kids, yes, if they come home with inexplicable purchases, like where did you get that purse, your nails done, your hair done, those are all suspicious, you know, in and of themselves, they're not, but I think when they're combined, with other red flags and I don't want parents to get hyper concerned because that's not helpful I think that's when conspiracy theories start or false information gets spread but I think when you are seeing red flags in mm -hmm. conjunction with other red flags it is time to wave the white flag and yeah yeah but I also think it's in conjunction with maybe a feeling we've had um you know you're opening my eyes to uh, some friends of ours that I was with their daughter recently and I'm she's like 16 and she was telling me about her boyfriend and and how he took her out to lunch at this really fancy restaurant and and I just remembered there was something in me that went it, it didn't sit right with me when she started talking about and the mom was like oh he buys her these incredible things I said well where does he get his money I don't know he like fixes this or he does you know he just does like odd jobs and I just remember thinking I had no correlation, but something didn't feel right in that conversation. So just you saying this is yeah. helping me to go, you know, I maybe need to have a conversation with that mom. And so, you know, on that, I think it's important for us before we even, you know, wrap up this conversation to talk about how we move forward, how when we find things are suspicious, or especially as a church, how do we proceed? And I know, Carolyn, you probably have something to say about this as well. I love that this compels people to action, but I want to affirm people who, you know, who I'm like, if you're a youth pastor and you are loving on kids in your youth group, that is anti-trafficking work. If you're a teacher and you're looking for kids who are falling through the cracks, that is anti-trafficking work. If you already work with at-risk, you know, a friend of mine here in town is the executive director of um, an organization called The Cove, and it is for at-risk youth who do not have a home. So if they live in a certain, you know, um, school district and they, and they don't have a parent at home, some of them have parents in jail, some of them you know, just different broken situations, then they can come there. That is anti-trafficking work. That is all really working to combat the trafficking problem. It may not directly feel that way, but you know, usually when I'm talking with older adults, they're like, I get it. Like this is part of my vocational call and my vocational call is lending itself to combating trafficking. It's really more my Baylor students, my students in their twenties, kind of early thirties, 
Um, but what's exciting about that, even in their, you know, their their eagerness to to be, so, you know, anti-trafficking um, abolitionists, I am noticing this emerging movement of um, fields that people can go up into specifically to combat human trafficking. So I oversee some honors college theses at Baylor, and these kids are movers and shakers, smart kids, and they're they're doing their senior thesis on human trafficking, different facets of it. But they are choosing to go into law specifically to be a human rights lawyer, or they're going into social work specifically to work with human trafficking victims. And I've pointed out to them, oh, one of them's a doctor and she wants to go specifically into working with, with victims. Um, and you know, I've pointed out to them 10 years ago, 20 years ago, these were not feasible career paths. So the rest of us have had to learn how to lend our vocation to combating human trafficking. And that is that is not wrong. I think that's actually very biblical to say, I'm an educator and I want to work with prevention education, or I'm a counselor and I want to pro bono, you know, see um, victims, you know, as part of my practice. All right, these are my gifts, these are my skill sets. How can I lend that to doing justice? And I think almost everybody who is working in justice is working to combat human trafficking because it just touches so many facets of places of, of brokenness. So are there any specific organizations or groups um, that you know, um, doctor, that or that that we should know about? Yeah, I'd mentioned Polaris Project, Department of Homeland Security. Even ICE has some good definitions for difference between you know immigration and illegal immigration and um, human trafficking. Um, IJM, International Justice Mission, um, and then National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. There are several other websites out there. Those are just the top ones I use. Trafficking Persons Report. As far as actual books, I, I have these over here just to kind of show mm -hmm. them to you. But um, I taught a human trafficking course, yeah, this is so teacher of me, but um, at Baylor last um, spring, you know, before COVID interrupted it. And it's a faith-based book on human trafficking, a guy named Raleigh Sadler who wrote a book from um, an organization that he started. And it really gives an overview of the landscape, what people can do. But I think it also gives a, a theological perspective on how we're all called to combat human trafficking. Um, but it, it, there's this biblical call. If we're going to talk about justice, I would be um, remiss if I did not bring up Timothy Keller. What does it look like to engage justice from a biblical perspective? I think this creates a great, um, uh, just sort of a theological framework for that. And then the last one I have here, I went through my bookshelf and I was like, I've got so many, but here's my top ones. Uh, just cultural engagement. I, trafficking itself isn't even in this book, but we're talking about, because a lot of different conversations have come up. We're talking about how do we parent well? And what does that look like to encourage our kids towards modesty or to be prudence with their behavior and their clothing. Cultural engagement looks at sort of what is that faith-based perspective towards X, Y, and Z. So I think a lot of different topics you guys are going to cover on your, your show, I think they're highlighted in here too. And so again, it's, it's not the Bible, but it is biblically informed. So hmm. I feel like anybody who shares even, you know, um, Judeo-Christian you know, worldview can gather around this truth, that we all agree that we were created in God's image, that we live in a fallen world, that we need to be redeemed and we need to be reconciled to Christ. And so when we take that as people of faith into whatever sphere of influence we're in, you know, education or business or, or medicine, I think it's really looking through this lens of where do I see a place of brokenness that I and myself cannot fix. I cannot fix human trafficking. I cannot fix a broken education system. I cannot make COVID go away. But what I can do is be a conduit of 
light and the darkness and understanding that that place of light, again, is not coming from me, but it is Christ in me. It's it's the hope of glory. Um, and so, yeah, I think just, you know, it, it, it's understandable how people who are not believers would not want to partner with that. But I think for believers, it goes back to our motivation and our calling, because that will ultimately impact the, the way that we engage the world. Well, that was beautiful. Thank you for that. I think we've seen that there's a lot of hurt in the world, and that hurt can easily turn into abuse. But we, as members of the body of Christ, members of the church, are agents of healing. So let's resolve to be that today. Be those agents. Reach out and heal some brokenness somewhere, whether it's human trafficking or other areas that are broken in the body. Let's be those agents of change. And we will continue to bring you these stories and hopefully those will be the catalyst for change as we talk about them here on The Full Life. We'll see you next time.